G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 with Neil Johnson on Vision. Our conversation today is about an extraordinary story of power, love, forgiveness and encouragement. Our special guest today came from a childhood of poverty and abuse. And he's become a remarkable example of how seemingly insurmountable obstacles can be overcome. Since his encounter with God, he has been driven with an absolute passion and enthusiasm to pass on the baton of the benefits that he has personally received from God. As a youth, Bill Sutcliffe found himself falling into bitterness, violence and petty crime. But his life was turned around at the age of nine by the kindness of a stranger who encouraged and believed in him. Bill went on to lead the Ballarat City Mission, helping and inspiring the disadvantaged to realise their own potential. And he has helped thousands of underprivileged Australians find hope. And as a sportsman, he's been an ultramarathon runner alongside the world's best. Bill Sutcliffe tells his story in a new memoir. It's called Driven, and Bill is our special guest today. Bill, a special welcome along to 2020. Join you, Neil. Hey, Bill. Uh, let's well. First of all, congratulations on the release of your book, and it's being picked up by a lot of people in a lot of places, and inspired by your story. It's a bit surreal, but I think it might be God's doing. Uh, we'll give Him all glory and honor for that. Hey, let's come back to just early days because we want to tell your story, but your story starts in young years. Uh, challenging times, uh, poverty, difficulties, dysfunctional family. Take us back to those early years, Bill. I was, and as I mentioned before, the, the word phrase domestic violence was in vogue. I experienced it at the hand of my alcoholic father, who, who because mum had thrown his, his dinner out, came home from the pub and got angry, picked up a knife and threw it at mum and hit me instead. Uh, so I lost my my eye and uh, so th- this is this and, is really and, challenging, and, isn't it? So <laughs> your father, who arrives home drunk, uh, throws a knife at your mother. Uh, she obviously ducks, and you're behind, and you lost an eye when you were hit with that knife. Exactly. Yes. Yes, and, I, I grew up very angry uh, about that. It wasn't long, however. Uh, before mum married again, a stranger walked into the house, my, my stepfather-to-be, and he was worse, worse if it's possible to be. Uh, didn't accept me, I didn't accept him. He had come from a, a family in England of a father, tough, very tough, uh, violent disciplinarian, so much so that he uh, jumped ship and came to Australia at an early age himself, uh, I think about 13 or 14. 
and probably, as I look back in retrospect, experience, sadly, some of the stuff that he was to dish out to me, uh, such as merciless floggings uh, with a, a razor strop called or strap, uh, whilst two of his sons held me, to belt me, and then rubbed salt into the salt into the wounds, scars of which are still in my back, seventy eight years later. And when you go through that sort of abuse. I can't help but pick up on what you say in your book where with all of the abuse that was going on in your childhood, uh, you held some grudge here blaming God for the abuse that had gone on in your younger years. Is that something that... How do you deal with that? Well, I think the great irony of that, of course, is to blame somebody you don't believe exists. And it's still the case today in society where people blame God, a God they don't believe in, for everything left, right and and centre. But, of course, my mother in the middle of all this was a great stumbling block to to getting away with this because uh, she had come to know the Lord in early age uh, in the the Salvation Army uh, and tragically was subject to a lot of domestic violence herself. but nothing could, could knock the faith out of my mother, which I couldn't get around. Uh, she, she would burst out into song um, whilst crying her heart out and, uh, try, and witnessing uh, my abuse in addition to her own. And when she tried to intervene or defend, she'd get more of. Uh, so I was stuck in the middle. And, and looking back, of course, I, I see the great incredible providence of God in that. She was holding out some hope, uh, being in a a very difficult domestic violence marriage, seeing this violence uh, played out in your own experience as a boy. And you grew up to be a bad-tempered, foul-mouthed, angry young man. What was it like? Yeah. And like I think happens today again, taking it out on society with with, with, uh, with theft, stealing, shoplifting mainly, and, and carrying out attacks on people's property, uh, such as up on Little Hill, this is in Milgrove, Milgrove, a little town outside of Melbourne, stealing potatoes and throwing them down at vehicles below. Uh, you know, today we look at this, and, and, and from my generation, it's tough, tough, terrible terrible stuff, the generation of today, but that was me and my generation uh, way back then, uh, taking out my, my frustrations and hurt on others who, who were innocent, like much crime, I must say. We might wonder about adults and the way we actually look out for children in our neighbourhood who are vulnerable and doing the wrong thing, and we know they're doing the wrong thing, they know they're doing the wrong thing, but you had an encounter with a, uh, a a someone who was uh, they had they owned a shop. You were shoplifting, and you got caught. Uh, take us into that story because this is something that actually creates uh, an impression of a, a need to turn around. Absolutely, I consider him a business proprietor that I was shoplifting from, and and a number of others subsequently unwitting mentors sowing the first seed of hope 
in my life. When, as you've said, I was apprehended shoplifting, they asked me how long I'd been doing it. After the hand had been placed on my shoulder, in those days of corporal punishment, you're expected to be savagely wheeled around and belted around the ears, but kicked in the behind a few times, and worse than that, uh, dragged home uh, to your family and police, and being dragged home to my stepfather would have been worse than being taken to a police station. Instead of that, I was gently wheeled around, and instead of looking into an angry uh, writer who had been ripped off, who had been stolen from I, I looked into the face of an incredibly uh, understanding and kind person who asked me how long I'd been doing it. And when I told him how long, which had been a fair while, you wouldn't believe what he said. He said, son, you're good, <laughs> which blew me away. It was the first time anybody had told me I was good at anything, doing wrong. And that was to sow a life-saving seed, literally, in my life and give me hope for going on and thinking, well, maybe, maybe I'll be good for something someday other than shoplifting. In fact, didn't he make a deal with you if you promised he, never yeah. to do that again? He did. And I never found out where he was coming from, whether it was spiritual or not, but it's would be the closest thing to to Jesus and real spirituality you could hear when he said, "Son, you are good," uh, but you know we're we're placed on this earth to give, not to take from people. And what if you promise me, you know, you won't do this again? I I, I won't uh, I won't tell your parents or the police or anyone, but but see that. You didn't say God given gifts or talents, but said, "Look, you, uh, you obviously intelligent, uh, but using it for the wrong purposes. Use it to give rather than to take." So that was the first incredible seed that was sown in my life. Bill, we'll get to all sorts of elements of your story, uh, but you've had a long career in supporting those who are disadvantaged, in offering hope to young people who've gone astray. Are you seeing or have you seen over the decades uh, any sorts of compassion that's coming from the community for uh, young, uh, you know, young people who are committing all sorts of crimes, whether it's uh, could be in any sort of dimension there? But uh, do people typically today look for the good in young people or is that or are we more quickly to judge, do you think? Look, overall, probably more quick to judge. But that's, again, as Jesus said, because that's the broad way. But for all that, there are those. In fact, one of my young daughters who came to know the Lord early uh, has been involved in, in juvenile justice for a long time, dealing with teenagers and, and young people. And there are, of course, in, in, in uh, specialist uh, groups in, in, in churches also, uh, who are in, who are endeavouring even many youth group meetings? There are those there uh, who have perhaps come from back from dysfunctional families like mine, uh, and have found hope. The only real hope there is in Jesus. Who are endeavouring, uh, as in in my case, to sow those seeds of hope and water those seeds of hope in other young people's 
lives also. And look, I spent the last uh, 12, 12 years prior to my wife getting very ill working in special education with young people as a, as a student counsellor. My youngest daughter is a proprietor of a, a NDIS um, provider for, for those with disabilities and she's working with a lot of my former students from school. So there are, uh, there is a considerable, considerable amount of, of work being done amongst, uh, done amongst young people of my background. Helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Our special guest is Bill Sutcliffe and we're taking some time today exploring his story. He's written a memoir. It's called Driven and he's got a significant story to tell. As a two-year-old, he lost an eye when his father threw a knife at his mother Missed his mother, took out Bill's eye. You became a very angry young man, Bill. But I want to bring, let's fast forward, and there's so much to your story. I feel like we're probably jumping over a lot of really interesting stories. But take us to a time as an angry young man, uh, you began to be open to the things of God and uh, eventually had something of a Damascus Road experience with him. Yes, I need to just, Quickly go back briefly, though, Neil, to the steps leading up to my to to my having this experience, and and that was that because I was sexually abused for uh, in a tragic couple of years, where I was basically a prisoner, not good enough to stay in the family home, and and uh, slept in a in the in a trailer made off the back of a utility for for two years, where I was sexually abused by. By stepbrother, which made me angrier. Still, that became obvious to a uh, to a local policeman. But leading up to that, I, I was given a job driving cattle and sheep on the road during a drought in northern Victoria, alone with about a hundred cattle and some some sheep and my dog Rusty, incredible friend, only friend I really had at that stage. When a Catholic couple. Um, the husband uh, had been a Baptist, married a, a Catholic woman, the church he was attending, offered me a job, uh, and there began another incredible input into my life uh, by the providence of God. And it was at this time as a, as a teenager that a local, local policeman, knowing uh, how I was and, and knowing my family's background, uh, Instead of dealing with me harshly through the law when, when I was involved in other pretty dangerous uh, pranks, put me in the boxing ring, got a boxing trainer for me, and that was, uh, again, another powerful seed sown and, and watered. Not sure advisor uh, therapy of trying to batter people's brains out to, to, to get rid of your frustrations, but nevertheless... Uh, well, someone had recognised that you were, in fact, a sports-oriented person. And so in the boxing ring, and oftentimes you'll hear those stories, won't you, of being in the boxing ring, the encouragement that comes from a trainer who has your best interests at heart. And uh, you that's, also that's tell the story of school teachers who recognise that there is something good uh, <laughs> hidden away in that angry young man. 
take us on to, you know, becoming involved in Bible discussions and an interest in God. Absolutely. Uh, and my first prayer was, was just for my last boxing bout, and I, I was praying that I'd get noticed. I was a good well-weight boxer, but had um, eight successful um, bouts, which I'd won by KOs and TKOs, and then I was undertaking an exhibition bout, and I prayed. This Catholic couple encouraged me to pray. At this stage, I was more agnostic than, than atheist, um, and I got beaten for the first time. I had a rematch, got beaten again, didn't realise uh, God was in this. So I got the idea of taking a young brother and travelling around Australia. Uh, and so I drove into St George, southwest Queensland, where an incredible group of Christian teenagers, some from Anglican Church, some from the Presbyterian, and others held it, were part of a Bible discussion group on a Sunday afternoon at the home of the manager of a sawmill that my young brother and I were working in. Uh, and it was through that group, through accepting myself and my young brother, warts and all, uh, that I first came to see that there was a difference between some of the uh, religion that I that I uh, experienced prior to that, and I couldn't get around that even more than I couldn't uh, around my mother's face. You were working in the sawmill, and that was the first time you ever heard the phrase that Jesus used: "You must be born again." Uh, so, for that bad-tempered, foul-mouthed, angry young man, uh, you recognised that something was changing because of an encounter with Jesus. Yes, well, it was actually just be- just before. Um, that being used in the sawmill because it was surrounding the first birthday party that I ever recall having in my life. This, in my memoir, is about other people, and, and I, I think autobiographies are all about other people that you encounter in life that come across your path. And other than Jesus, the most important person uh, and the other hero in my life is my, my wife, Bev, of 56 years, who was part of this youth group. And she had had organised a twenty-first a surprise, twenty-first birthday party for me. Um, we'd been going together, um, but the mother kept warning her off me, and uh, and you know, Bev as well was familiar with the Bible phrase, not being unequally yoked with non-believers, um, was 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 reticent finally. Um, to get too serious with me and, and broke off our going together, but resolved she'd still go ahead with the 21st birthday party. It was, and this is on the eve of my the 4th of April, 1964, on the eve of my 21st birthday. Uh, she went ahead uh, and had and, and conducted this 21st birthday for, party for me. It was following that during the course of that party, where externally I was alive to the party, but internally. I was in turmoil. I thought I was going crazy. Words came to me, which I later discovered were from the Bible. You know, don't get distracted. Uh, go after things which can't really satisfy you, i.e. sport, uh, as your God. <laughs> and uh, they taunted me. But, and finally, in the early hours of the morning after the party, uh, not being able to get to sleep, I had this vision where this bloke, this person, didn't even believe in, appeared, Jesus, saying he was Jesus. 
and saying, Bill, you've had an incredible time uh, experiencing real family, uh, part of my family tonight and again. Uh, I was bewildered and confused and here's this person who just had such such power and authenticity about him. Uh, uh, being direct to me and saying, Bill, look, this is wonderful, but uh, there's an issue in your life you've got to deal with, and that is non-forgiveness. You've got to forgive your abusers. Uh, and wow, uh, did I get angry, and, and uh, I still regret uh, how I, I, I spoke to Jesus then, but it, it was like... Uh, it's a tough thing. It's a tough call. You've got to forgive your abusers, uh, your father, your stepfather, your stepbrother, stepbrother yeah. uh, all abusers. And uh, it's difficult to understand where God is, even in the harshest experience of our lives. And uh, as no matter how bad experiences are, uh, there's the presence of God who's going to lead us into a different direction and you had this call now. We're going to continue our conversation after the news. You found yourself very quickly in Bible college. Give us an idea about what was going on there. Well, I did indeed because manager of the sawmill while I was working, as I mentioned, was part of that youth group who embraced me. And after Jesus had, in an incredible way, given an explanation about forgiveness, and he said, Bill, it's not about them, it's about you. Forgiveness is for you, because otherwise it's like a cancer, it will, it will kill you. And, and then I did something else audaciously. I said, if you're real, this person claiming to be Jesus, if you're real, prove yourself. And it was then I probably had the the first sleep in living memory as I left it at that and, and went to sleep and <clears throat> went to work. This was a Sunday. Went to work at the sawmill the following day and for the first time I was at peace. The person pulling timber away from the saw said, Bill, what's the matter with you? Are you sick or something? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, you haven't thrown off the handle. You haven't even sworn for the day. It was then the penny dropped and I realised something profound had happened. I shared it with, with the Christian manager of the sawmill, Stan Fletcher, and he said, Bill, this is what Jesus spoke about. You've been born again. You've, you have received new life. And it was following that uh, in the Bible discussion group at, at Stan Fletcher's house, in fact, that the home missionary in the Presbyterian Church, Jack Evans and his wife Ollie, uh, met, started the mentor me and said, then questioned me and said, Bill, what do you think now for your life? And I said, look, I've only got one desire, and that is to go back to the people of my background and to share what Jesus has done. And they had been students in the Melbourne Bible Institute and, and suggested if I was really serious about that and after praying into that, uh, it, it was confirmed, then endeavour to enrol, and, and that I did. And, and so uh, the following year, 1965, uh, I, I must tell you, I had to learn English uh, before I could study Greek. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, I was engaged to Bev by this time. We got back together after my conversion. And uh, so I was a really wet behind the, the years, a new Christian in, in MBI. And that's where I met uh, Johnny Smith, who was the founder of the God Squad. 
He was the son of a, a, pres- of a um, Methodist minister from Childers. I wasn't. And uh, John mentored me spiritually, and I mentored him practically, taking, it, taking him to a pub of a, a, after um, a day's study if we didn't have work duties and, uh, and sharing with him, I'm teaching him, showing him how to relate to, to non-Christians, people of the world, and he, of course, um, discipling me spiritually. Uh, and it was there that uh, I had uh, some of my first work experience in, in, in Pantridge Prison. This is very good to, I think, draw attention to. Uh, Here you are uh, going off to Bible college. As you say, you've got to learn English before you can learn the Greek, but you did find yourself grappling with the Greek New Testament. And when you're actually there getting your first experiences of ministry, uh, you're assigned to be someone who goes into Pentridge Prison. So how did you relate to the prisoners? Well... It, well, many of them, a lot of them, and talking of young people, so many were from my background, and so I related pretty well and, and pretty easily, uh, quite frankly. Uh, was there with a Brigadier Peterson, Salvation Army, uh, working under un, under his wing. Uh, so it, it, it was very clear that uh, I was at home there, and, and perhaps this this uh, could be an area that, that I would be involved in. Uh, working for the Lord full time, even. And just to uh, to you know, short circuit some of the story here and and uh, skip over a lot of detail. I know because there's so much to cover. You actually went on to be a director of prison fellowship. Yeah, correct. Yes, I, I firstly was appointed uh, was appointed called missioners in those days, but manager for one of a better phrase of the the Melbourne City Mission drop-in centre in North Melbourne, dealing with some 200 street people a day. That's, that's where I really started. Uh, but prior to that, after our, our marriage, I, I had uh, non-Christians, uh, particularly the disenfranchised non-Christians on my heart, um, street people that, who, who were from mostly alcoholics from all walks of life and would go under bridges and into old houses and uh, take them home for Bev to look after. <laughs> it was a, a really uh, tough introduction to my side of life to to Bev, who came from a uh, you know very uh, insular, relatively home in in Queensland. Uh, but as I mentioned before, she has just been incredible, uh, and just is, is my hero alongside of Jesus. I must tell you. And you went on to be the youngest superintendent of the Ballarat City Mission in its 100-year history. Uh, I know we're jumping around uh, into uh, some other aspects of your career here as someone who's serving God uh, in your gift. Uh, Take us into what what led them to actually uh, move you into that role. Well, the the former superintendent of the Melbourne City Mission was a Ron Barnes Baptist minister uh, who had moved up to Ballarat uh, to uh, pastor a church there and when they were looking for a new superintendent Ron who of course had been my superintendent in the Melbourne City Mission uh, recommended me and uh, so uh, Bev was appointed mission sister and I was appointed superintendent uh, in 1971 so that's how, that's how we got there 
uh, which was a marvellous, marvellous ministry. When you reflect on your entire ministry career, and it's all been about working with, you might even say, serving the vulnerable, because passing on this baton, passing on the grace and mercy of God that you've received to others who need to understand that grace and mercy. Um, Passing on the baton is one of those significant things, but you've been able to do that because there's been some special elements of your life, prayer and recognizing the providence of God in all of the the aspects. Uh, Take us into how you reflect on a whole ministry career and the challenges, but the way that God has led you through those. Absolutely. And my, my first realisation that God's providence was was in all this was when I was appointed as missionary in charge manager of the Melbourne City Mission Drop-In Centre and there was publicity about that in the Christian New Life newspaper, Melbourne Age secular newspaper, received a letter from an aunt I didn't know existed. He said, oh, Bill, this is incredible. Uh, and I've discovered you. Well, rediscovered you. I've been praying for you ever since you had been born. I uh, didn't know where you were, what had become of you. Uh, and she said, I'm just, I'm just overwhelmed with gratitude uh, to the great grace of God who has kept his hand upon you. So that was my first uh, strong realisation that prayer was behind all of this. And uh, I have been incredibly blessed uh, with that realisation that A, of the vital importance of prayer, and B, again, of the practical uh, benefits and blessings of, of people who are being upheld in prayer, even without their knowing it, as has been the case for me uh, throughout my lifetime of ministry. Bill, I know that joining the dots is important when you're reflecting on what God has done in your life. And so you have the auntie who was praying you, praying for you uh, right from when you were a child, no doubt recognising you were in these abusive uh, domestic violence situations. But when you know that someone has been praying for you and you can reflect on the shopkeeper, and on your teachers who recognised something in you, and the boxing trainer, and the people at the sawmill, and the people at the Bible study. Uh, these sorts of things all mean something, don't they, when you recognise that God's hand has been upon you all that time? Absolutely, and it means something perhaps even more powerfully and profound to those who need to know it, such as I did initially before becoming a Christian, and it has proved to be so powerful and so effective in the lives of non-Christians, drawing them to the Lord, as, as I was, in, in challenging God to prove himself, which as in Malachi 3, he says, prove me now and see if I won't open the windows of heaven and pour you out so much blessing you won't be able to hold all or contain it all. And so that's been my privilege to pass on the baton in that sense, especially to non-Christians, bearing in mind the priority of God uh, as from the mouth of Jesus is to sickest who need the doctor the most, uh, and consequently those in the greatest need the vulnerable, as, as you've mentioned, and, and in fact will extract most rejoicing in heaven. Uh, as again, Jesus said, more rejoicing in heaven over one a non-Christian that becomes a Christian and 99 they don't need to be. And of course, they will have had their day of rejoicing when they became Christians, but 
as far as ministry priority at this moment and always, it should be uh, the non-Christians. And you know, rather than necessarily as building up numbers in the church, it should be about building up those who, who cause more rejoicing in heaven who, who are becoming Christians. Do you ever come across people, Bill, who have been through similar hardships to yours? Uh, they grew up and they're yeah. angry and they've never come to a point where they've recognised that forgiveness is the thing that sets you free from that anger and they've stayed in their anger. And uh, do you come across people who have just spent their lives angry with God and never been able to be uh, set free into that peace of God that you mentioned and then even to be able to then use that gift to pass on good things to others? Oh, yes, I have a great many constantly and that's my great prayer and my great anguish in in prayer for those uh, and of course prisons are full of, of such people uh, which is a great sadness and that's why uh, you know we who have love in us uh, in as much as have God Jesus in us because God is love uh, a duty bound to to share that and, and you know driven as this memoir is is proving to be such a powerful tool and look if, if there wasn't a cent coming out of that but thousands as is the case are being reached through driven which has gone across australia and is appearing randomly over countries uh just causing people perhaps to look afresh at this factor of forgiveness or forgiving uh is about us, is about our great need um, for healing that comes through it uh, because non-forgiveness is a cancer. No question about that. So you've been serving the vulnerable all these years. Uh, you've got this background which is shaped by hardship and in that you've learned levels of resilience to be able to survive and uh, so certainly your faith in God has has helped you make sense of all of those things. Uh, but it, it comes to light, too, in the practical ways uh, that you actually excelled, not only uh, reflecting on your boxing career earlier, but but on the ultramarathon running. And you've competed against some of the world's best. Uh, hardships and resilience, do they go hand in hand? Absolutely. And uh, again, the, Lord's, the Scriptures speak about they who endure to the end. Uh, unquestionably going to be saved, not through works, it's by grace of course, but as with the Apostle Paul and other great warriors in the Bible, they were endurers and, and they came to the realisation that it's all about Jesus in us, well, and prayer once again, as, um, as Isaiah forty thirty one says, you know, they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength, they shall mount up with wings as eagles, to run and not grow weary and walk and not faint. And uh, it's that combination of, of, of factors, body, uh, mind and spirit and, and uh, God's promise to strengthen us in all ways as we, we allow him uh, to be the, the real strength in our lives. And, and hence, for me, uh, endurance running, that they came about differently. Uh, what came to Ballarat, there's a bit of a fairly strong anti-Christian sentiment in many ways and uh, spirituality could hardly get mentioned in, in, in newspapers. 
uh, Christians were considered to be wusses and um, without knowing much about the true strength of women, you know, we were called old women and I would say, oh my goodness, you know, uh, my wife is stronger than some of the four men I know. Um, but consequently, it was through that that I, I was challenged to uh, to do my first ultramarathon run and ran from Melbourne to, from Ballarat to Melbourne and back. Um, 220 k's approximately, a little bit more in those days before the before the freeway, and uh, it was incredible. Uh, after that, um, the non-Christian media uh, wanted to interview me and, and uh, wanted to find out where this bloke's coming from who was a bit different. Um, in fact, I had a different attitude to sport again because I, when I became a Christian, I had a misunderstanding of. Second Corinthians five seventeen. If anyone's in Christ, you're a new person. Old things are passed away. All things become new. And 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 I thought, you know, I had to be done with sport. It was part of the old. And then I arrived in Ballarat. A uh, uh, one of the board members of Melbourne's Ballarat City Mission was a former Victorian worldweight boxer cha- boxing champion who had beaten Andre Famishon to win the state title. Johnny Famishon, Famishon's dad, and he was having an incredible ministry to, to young people. So that challenged me afresh and, and uh, caused me to, to look at sport with different eyes as, as a way, in fact, of, of pointing people to Jesus. And so I had a track printed, uh, a reason to run, which included my testimony and gave out thousands of this and saw people coming to the Lord on the side of the road. Uh, and as again, the providence of God and prayer of God was working. Sport is a powerful way of communicating and if you are a sports person and you're good at what you do and you competed alongside the likes of Yanis Kouros and uh, lots of listeners will remember Cliff Young and uh, you ran alongside them in the Colac six-day race a number of different times. But yes, having that sports as part of who you are uh, create something that is in our Aussie character that does relate to sports people. And when we talk about the title of your book, now it's very simple. The simple title is Driven. And to be a an elite sports person, you're driven by something, a passion to succeed. When you come from your background, the angry young man, you could be driven by your anger, but you've been yeah. driven by a different force. When you talk about being driven by those things that come from faith in God and passing those on to another generation, uh, uh, just give us an insight here about what we all might glean from your story about being driven in the way that we serve God in our own communities. Look, it's really being driven by love and being driven by Jesus and driven by Jesus as enabling, you know, as the Apostle Paul came to see you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Get through tough times, but more important than that, believe that even in tough times, look, I believe in the power of God. I can believe that nothing's too hard for him. He can do anything, healing-wise, otherwise. But, as the Apostle Paul found out, when whatever the form his flesh was, he prayed three times for it to be taken away, and God said, no, I'm not going to do it, because you're going to benefit from uh, from this thought in your flesh, because uh, when you are weak, then you're strong in me. You've got to depend on me. And this is what I found. It's about Jesus in us. Um, beautiful, beautiful story, quickly. 
about this girl who came to the Lord in the old days when you simply believed that Jesus was knocking on the heart of your door and if you open the door, he'd come in, as in, in Revelation 3.20, and she asked the Lord to come into her heart. And somebody asked her afterwards, what are you going to do when the devil comes knocking at, at your heart's door to get in? And she said, I'll send Jesus to the door. And, you know, that, that's simple, but it's incredibly powerful and profound. Sending, knowing that Jesus is in us, um, he's, he's the one. We send him to the door in all sorts of situations, as the Apostle Paul learned and so many millions have learned throughout the ages. And so for me, it really is being an example of how Jesus does this in our lives. Uh, not hitting people over the bed with a big black book as much as I love the, the Bible as my favourite book every day, but nevertheless, it's got to be lived by love and by proof that that Jesus really is the answer. He is he's alive, he's, he's resurrected, and he's alive, and he wants to prove that in our lives uh, by giving him a go, allowing him to prove himself in our lives by prayer and by faith and trust in him. Well, Bill, we love your story, love your wisdom, and uh, there's a real takeaway there for listeners today. Uh, is it the devil knocking? If it's the devil knocking, send Jesus to answer the door. Uh, driven, driven by anger? No, driven by God's grace and mercy, driven by Jesus and his enabling. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Bill Sutcliffe's memoir is called Driven. And for listeners, you might want to get a hold of it. Uh, it's well written. It's easy to read. Driven. When you realize someone else thinks you have potential, you'll start believing it yourself. It's a story of faith. It's a story of resilience. Uh, the boxing, the ultramarathon running. Uh, you'll be able to get a hold of the book Driven. Uh, simply Google Driven. You'll find it at online booksellers everywhere. It, it's the, the author is Bill Sutcliffe. And uh, Bill, just wonderful getting your insights today. I know listeners will love the book. I want to thank you so much for taking some time to share these thoughts and your story with us on 2020. With my joy and pleasure, Neil. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au. 